We are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. This is the second part of a two-part episode. To hear part one, listen to last week's episode and then come back for this one. I just saw on CNN, for example, that George Stephanopoulos, completely asymptomatic, but has tested positive for COVID. And my first question is, George, how come you got a test if you were asymptomatic? Why'd you get a test? There are people Mm -hmm. who are like practically gasping for air in their homes and can't get tested for COVID. That's a system of privilege, right? So, So paying attention in my view, since we are all sitting at home, there was a there was a tiger uh, at a zoo that tested positive, and my first question was, how did that tiger get a test? Exactly, that's um, insane. All the news stories feature um, white men, privileged white men, that are um, yeah. getting testing. All the people that are positive are that I'm seeing on the news seem to be this collective of white men. Yeah. Yes, and usually m- men of like George Stephanopoulos, people who have money, who have or have fame right. or something. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So it's, so we can notice that, right? We can notice that, but also what we can do is we can notice our own reactions. And I think that because we are all home, because we are all kind of facing a a vastness of time and, and, and space and energy that maybe we haven't had before, right? We can begin to notice these things in ourselves. So we might begin to notice as somebody who's listening to to me saying, hey, George, how come you have a test? Maybe there's resistance to that that's coming up in you. And we can start paying attention to the way that we resist the, the, what, when somebody is pointing out systemic racism, right? What is the resistance to that? The other thing that we can, might be able to do, and this is a little bit where I, I believe it's soul, my soul was pointing something out to me. I woke up uh, yesterday and the first thing that I woke up hearing uh, was, and I, and I, I want to say this very carefully. This is where, again, where my mysticism comes in, but I do believe that within this um, tragedy, we are being given a gift. And and I, I do not mean to undermine or diminish the pain of this moment at all. And I also recognize that my ability to, to see this as a gift comes is deeply embedded in, in my privilege. I have a beautiful home. My refrigerator is stocked. My husband and I are still working all of the things. Like we have a lot of privilege. But we're being given this gift to slow down and really go into a place of self-examination where we can really look within and, and see these things. And I think that that is, for me personally, I think I, God is showing me that, that, this, that I can find, find this as a gift. And I woke up yesterday and the first thing I thought of that I was reminded of or that I heard God say was, we're going to be living life differently on earth from now on after this. And I would love that. I'd, I'd love to understand what that's going to be. But then God said, remember the pool? 
I, I was reminded we have a town pool that we are a member of, our family is a member of, and it costs about $300 a year to be a member of this, for a family of four to be a member of this pool. And it's been an amazing experience for, I mean, every summer we've been able to go, kids went every summer. We're getting to the age where maybe the kids are not so interested anymore, but but we still go. But a few years ago, we were given the opportunity to vote, the members of the pool were given the opportunity to vote as to whether we wanted to offer day passes to members of the community. And I know, I confess, in that moment, without even thinking, I voted no, because all I could think of was, oh my gosh, it's going to get so crowded. It's already crowded. Sometimes you can't get a table, like all the things. And in the moment when I first woke up, and I mean, when I first opened my eyes, this is what was in my head was I had just participated in systemic oppression because what I essentially did was I kept out people who were not able to collect $300 at one time of disposable income. And I said to them, no, you do not get to have access to this pool, to this public pool because of my comfort, because I wanted to keep it for me. Right. And it was such a disheartening, I was like, damn it. <laughs> it was so disheartening to recognize that in myself. And even to the to now, I, I still feel resistant to the idea of allowing day passes. Like I still recognize that in me. I still don't want to do it. Even though if I had the choice today, I would vote differently. Just as an act of, sh- of sheer will, <laughs> I would vote differently. <laughs> And that's where we have to practice agency over it. And so the way that plays out systemically is for generations, Black people have not had access to pools or beaches. The pool is in a predominantly Black neighborhood of my town. So we have had, there's this beautiful town pool in the middle of the largest Black population in my town. And most, and many of them do not have access to it that live there in that area of town. And yet there will be this narrative among white people that black people can't swim. It's just one of the many stereotypes we love to hold about people without recognizing that black people have been kept out of public pools and beaches for generations. So I can't remember what, oh, you were talking about paying attention. I told you I was going to get tangential on this. So paying attention, that was a way that I, my attention was brought to something and I had to sit with it and sitting with it is the hardest part. Of, of paying attention. We can pay attention. We can notice something and then go, oh, I don't, I'm not going to pay attention to that. I'm going to go think about something else. Or when it's brought to our attention, we can sit and we can notice and we can even experience our own resistance to the idea. I, I don't know. I don't know what to say because I think I, I really, really, you say it was tangential, but I really love the story about the pool um, mm-hmm. because I, I know you don't love it because it hurts. <laughs> mm-hmm. but, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. It's a heartbreaking mm-hmm. story, but, but it's a real story. It's a real sure story. We all tell so yeah, I mean, and that's mm-hmm. I, why I love it is I think it's pointing back to the heartbreaking stories of my own life. I'm 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 catching myself and it's it pushes you to that sad place where where you feel teary, where you're like, Wow, I really I really mm-hmm. dropped the ball there. Wow, what was mm-hmm. that? What was that? And there's also something really powerful too. why I like that story is it's so complicated because like you said, your initial thought, at least your initial 
thought you thought was mm-hmm. that there was like, I, I'm just thinking about inconvenience, but mm-hmm. you really didn't unpack what that meant for like the rest of the world right. and communities. And what I also like about that is that that really does speak to me about this idea of, you know, and I'll get very Christian here because I'm teaching a, a theological class this semester on Catholic social justice. And we talked about racism and systematic injustice and this idea of like kind of institutionalized sin and personal sin and where they overlap mm-hmm. and how how it is, how this kind of self-centeredness that points to ourselves that, like you even said before, the neurobiological predisposition to, you know, I want to be safe in my family of origin or mm-hmm. I don't want to be inconvenienced to the pool. I mean, these things, you can trace it out and you could, from one point of view, if we weren't talking, if this topic wasn't race, you could just be like, oh, so-and-so is being selfish or there's an economic thing. Or I, The threads are so interconnected. Mm-hmm. And, and as you've pointed out at the beginning of this conversation, privilege rides that. Yes. And uses that. Yep. And that's what yep. makes it so hard because if you pull it privilege, then there's these ne- neurobiological urges. There's these mm-hmm. economic urges. There's just self-centeredness. There's mm-hmm. just being a human being because all human beings yep. have, you know, like, so no one's perfect. So everyone has mm-hmm. that. And it just plugs into a place where it makes it so messy and so uncomfortable that you just, yes. you want to cry. <laughs> yeah. yeah, because it seems impossible to untangle, right? right? It seems impossible. And that's where I think a lot of white people just kind of give up because we go, I can't change the justice system. I can't change the education system, right? And I think that th- this is another reason why I wanted to write a book like this about getting white people to think about whiteness is because, you know, in that moment when I voted, I didn't realize it in the moment, maybe I did and didn't chose not to pay attention. Um, but I was exercising power, right? It didn't feel like I was exercising power at the time, but I was exercising power. Mm -hmm. If I can, if, if we, as a collective group of white people, if we can get more white people who are in positions of power, whether it's their vote at the pool or whether it's their place on the bench in a, in a courtroom or as a medical doctor who's treating the BIPOC community and even white other white people and how we deal with other white people too, right? If we can increase awareness of our own white identity for all of these people in all of these, that's how we can, who are, who are playing roles within these systems of power, of dominance, that, that's how we can potentially start changing the system, right? If there's one judge who's sitting on a bench who's aware of her privilege and she's aware of her white identity and how it is playing out, and then she decides to start practicing agency over it as she's entering into sentencing practices and all of this stuff, then we can start changing the system the more and more people are doing that. So that's my hope. It's a big hope, but that's my hope. I, I want to, th- somebody has to have a question, but I just want to say, I want to thank you personally for that because um, I, I'm going to use this in my class where I, my students, we have this conversation about what does it mean uh, if you took Catholic social justice, for instance, it's a class I'm teaching. So uh, how would, if I'm taking that seriously, how do I, 
how do I combat this? And you've just given this, this idea of noticing, taking agency over that drive. And this is a way of getting at the system. The system yes. is embed- is embedded. It's embodied. Yes. I mean, we so have to subvert it. <laughs> so just taking your own agency and pushing against that is 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 profound. And even yeah. though it might feel small, it's not small because it really does start to put a different narrative out there. And and I think my students are actually they've been grasping, asking like, what could I do? Mm, that's beautiful. I love that. And you, well, you that. you said it. It's not me. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, <laughs> Kevin, you're you're reminding me of that scene in the movie The Matrix, where they have to pull the bug yes. out of um, Neo's body. Yeah, and of course it's it's icky and gross and that kind of thing. But there's this, you know, yes, yeah, systemic oppression is embedded in our bodies, the bodies of those of us who carry privilege, and so you know, so we have got to do that hard work of, like in the movie, of finding it and then of extracting it. This conversation on Encountering Silence will continue after a 30-second break of silence. Take a moment and breathe with us. Another thing that I want to just quickly point out is when it comes to paying attention, something something that white people, I think, really want is we want the answer. We want, just tell me how to fix it and I'll fix it. Like, I don't <laughs> want to be a racist, so just tell me how not to be a racist and I'll be done. But the, the problem is, is that it's very often it's contextual and it's not often, very, especially in not systemic racism, but interpersonally, very often racialized situations are very often paradoxical, contextual and they're racist and not racist at the same time, right? Because we're all human beings, right? And so that's why racially aware white people, I believe, will understand how to hold paradox and how to understand that they might not know exactly what to do in a given context, that we need to submit to to the BIPOC community and to their leadership, and that hopefully we can get to a point where we are in such deep relationship with people, uh, with the BIPOC community, with Black people in the BIPOC community, that if we are in a room of diversity that's filled with diversity, that we will be able to know. Because, it, you know, so my best friend Aisha is Black, and there are times when I, I know that if a certain situation occurred, Aisha would be like, Carrie, just shut up. Like, don't say anything because for her own safety, she needs this to not escalate, right? For her safety, which is not a privilege. That's a, me not having to think about safety is a privilege that I get. If somebody's being a jerk to her because she's black, I could say something, but that doesn't mean she's going to be safe, right? So mm-hmm. there's there's that issue, right? Mm-hmm. And then in other issues, other situations, my uh, black friend may go, Carrie, can you just deal with this person? Because I do not feel like like dealing with her stupidity, right? Or whatever. And so I have to kind of always be aware, practice awareness of 
who's in the room, what's happening, and what might be my call as a white anti-racist in that particular context. And it's not always going to be the same. There's not one answer for that. So I just wanted to, to make that point. So, so you've made references to paradox, this conversation we've talked about paying attention. You made a reference to mysticism. I, I, I want to tell a brief story and then ask you about all of the above. So I got to know a theologian who passed away a few years ago named Kenneth Leach. And Ken was a, a priest of the Church of England. And he became known in America because he wrote several books on spirituality. He wrote a book on spiritual direction called Soul Friend, a book called True Prayer, uh, Experiencing God, several. And they were all really wonderful books. In England, Ken worked in East London, if you know the show Call the Midwife, he, he worked about a mile from where Call the Midwife was set. And that neighborhood became a neighborhood with a large immigrant population, and there became issues of racism, because you had poor whites and you had immigrants living close together, and so racism became an issue. And Ken became something of an authority in the Church of England on mm. race relations and, and on dismantling racism within the Church of England. So this is the backstory. Okay. Ken comes to America and he speaks at an Episcopal seminary, which shall remain nameless. And this is back in the late 1980s. And he's giving a talk. He was invited to give a talk on dismantling racism in the church. So he gives this talk. At the end of the talk, one of the seminarians comes up to him and says, thank you so much for this talk. It was really, really enlightening. And, you know, it's funny because I came to this talk because I thought you were the other Kenneth Leach. And Ken said, what do you mean, the other Kenneth Leach? And the seminarian said, oh, you know, the one who writes all the books on mysticism. Funny. As, as a teacher of prayer and mysticism and contemplation wow. could be the same person. Now, Amen. that was 30 years ago, and I, and I would hope that we've made some little, little bits of, of progress, you know, but I, I, I know the world well enough to know that for some people, they still haven't got the memo. <laughs> but my question for you is, how do you, on, on, your, on your website, you identify that, that the mystical dimension of Christianity is really important to you. Mm -hmm. How do you bring together your commitment to the contemplative mm -hmm. thread of Christianity, of following Jesus, and this important work that you've been called to do mm. and that you're calling us to do to, to face and dismantle racism? How do those two integrate for you? So I love, I love the story you just told because it makes me realize like, okay, maybe it's not just me who has a branding problem. <laughs> Because that's what I've often thought. <laughs> like, I really have a branding problem. Um, but I, for me, the two go hand in hand. I mean, I wouldn't be doing this work if it wasn't for Jesus, bottom line. I, I don't recommend getting involved with Jesus if you don't want to be radically challenged with this kind of stuff. <laughs> like, you know, and, um, and, he doesn't allow you to, I, I can't be in relationship with Jesus and then be permitted to go about propping up the status quo anymore. Just can't. And mysticism comes mostly from the, an understanding of the feminine divine. My experience in the, in the church has not done, has only worked to suppress my 
mystical sensibilities, I guess. But I also come out of an evangelical, you know, non-denominational evangelical background where if, if they knew many of my experiences, I might be burned at the stake. Uh, nice big barbecue on the front lawn. But I just, the word mama bear comes to mind. And it also comes from being in deep relationship with, with the, with black people um, predominantly, uh, but also with, with other members of other racial groups, but mostly being, becoming in deep, and becoming is the right word, in, in deep relationship with people of color, it created in me a, a sense of, I, of I, I, deep care, just deep, deep care and rage at the injustice of it and knowledge and understanding and perspective that I hadn't had before. This idea of the, the feminine divine and the mama bear being protective, like a protective nature of these people that I cared about kind of came out. And then I needed to tone that down a little bit because, I, again, that's where the context comes in. Do they need me to shut up right now or do they need me to speak up? Which one do they need? Um, and trying to be that. And also the mysticism helps me to understand this idea of the interconnectedness of all of us and the mysticism of the of embodiment the idea that we have and i tried to i tried to write about this in the book i'm not sure i did very did it very well but you know two people when we walk into a room two souls when we walk into a room encased in a skin color uh, we bring with us all of the baggage of that skin color, whatever skin color it might be. And we automatically start making all sorts of, our brains start making all sorts of decisions and coming up with ideas about this person, whether we know it or not, or whether we want that to happen or not. But I think that sometimes our souls connect, right? Souls connect regardless of embodiment. But we still have to work out. We still have to have to traverse that space in between where the skin color is, right? And all the ideas and all and all of the energy involved with that. And I'm really into quantum physics. I only understand like every third word. But what I can understand, I'm fascinated by, right? So, so, and it's not a lot that I understand, but I can understand some of it. And so, th this idea of entanglement and this idea of um, of energy fields and particles and the way we can impact each other is, um, I want to be more intentional about that. It makes me want to be more intentional about it and thoughtful. And that's why, that's how mysticism plays into race for me. Now, if you can figure out a logo for that to brand it, that'd be awesome. <laughs> Yeah, well, we we'd like to jump on that brand too because it is a weird. We walk in that space, and it's like you know, people think we're doing silence podcasts, and they think we just want to sit in the corner and, and be navel gazers, you know. And we have to tell people it is that kind there's of an oxymoron. Yeah. yeah, we have to tell people that there's this whole other toxic silence. There's this. There's action. There's activity. There's action in the world. Or, you know. So good. So good. To truly befriend divine silence, sacred silence, is to be impelled to speak and to act. 
And one thing that, that I, I've learned this, I've been schooled on this over and over again during the two years, two plus years of doing this podcast. But I love your comment about the contextuality of knowing when to speak and when to be silent. And I think that right there is a, is a soundbite for the integration of contemplation and action. So along with this embodiment of these various dimensions of silence and action and mysticism, right, all these things we're talking about, do you have a silence hero, someone that maybe embodies all of that in one package together for you, dead or alive, um, someone that just has inspired you in these realms of being? That was a, a hard question for me to answer, uh, or is a hard question, because this idea of being intentionally being intentional about silence is somewhat new to me. But in thinking about that question, I and it's so cliche, but I have to go with Jesus. And I and here's why. Um, I've been in the desert in the Jordan, and there's a certain kind of silence there. And you can kind of, you can sense the hum of the earth in that desert, you know. And, you know, they say the universe is not truly silent. It hums, right? So that hum of creation and of God's self, I think uh, you can experience that in the desert. And so I think about Jesus and how he often was very intentional about retreating for self-care and, and for communion with the divine. And I wonder what what it must have been like to have been Jesus and be embodied in the way Jesus was embodied and then experience that kind of silence in that desert. You know, I was right across the Dead Sea from Israel, and we know that Jesus was in the places in Jordan that I was in. So to 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 be in that place and to think about silence in that context um, is a little mind-blowing. Yeah, and he, he didn't just stay silent, obviously. <laughs> no, he did not. He flipped some tables. <laughs> and was executed by the state for it. <laughs> well, Carrie, thank you so much for joining us today. It was wonderful to see you and to talk to you. Here, Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. Same here. Same here. I could continue as well. I wish I could stay. <laughs> so. And Carrie, remind us your website. It's uh, the, the best way to find me for all the things is just to go to my website, which is carrieconnelly.com. So that's K-E-R-R-Y Connolly, C-O-N-N-E-L-L-Y. Thank you. Thank you, guys. It was such a pleasure and what a great conversation. We are Encountering Silence. I'm Cassidy Hall. To learn more about me, please visit CassidyHall.com. I'm Kevin Johnson. To find out more about my work, visit my website, KevinMichaelJohnson.com. I'm Carl McCollman. My website is CarlMcCollman.com. Please visit the podcast website at EncounteringSilence.com. There, you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. By making a purchase through our website, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Also, to learn more about how you can be a part of our circle of supporters, visit patreon.com 
slash encountering silence. This way you can share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all too noisy world.